Hey, so for the next three weeks, we're taking a little bit of a break from Proverbs, and we're actually going to do a little three-week series. I'm just going to call um, Rooted in Truth, or Roots in Truth. And what I want to do is kind of talk about three things that I think are absolutely fundamental. If you're ever going to understand who God is, understand who you are, things you have to have to have to understand, ancient truths that I hope will ground you. If you, if you, if you hear them and rest in them, they will ground you, they will focus you, they will root you. And uh, what I want to do tonight is look at uh, one of the very oldest truths from the Bible uh, that's huge for us. I think we've lost in our day. It's the idea of covenant. And to do that, I'm going to go to Genesis 15, and you have it printed in your handout. I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll dive in. So Genesis 15, I'm just going to read verse 7 to 18. And this is a story out of uh, Abraham's life uh, when he's still Abram. And it's the, it's the uh, first place where God makes a covenant with him. And it's a weird passage, but I, I hope to unpack it tonight in a way that is uh, helpful and beautiful and true. So Genesis 15, and we start at verse 7. Here's what it says. And he said to him, it's God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham, Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I trust you? Is what he's saying. He said, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. Abraham knows what's going on. It's this this ancient covenant ceremony. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, two sides. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham or Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, this is where it gets weird, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, know for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, this is the weirdest part, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Let me stop there, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in to our passage tonight. Let me pray first. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent. You are a God who does not remain hidden. You are a God who loves to reveal yourself, not just uh, to Abram, to our father Abraham, but even today to us, uh, men and women like us. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet us in this place tonight. As we think about this, um, the place where you initiated and started this covenant relationship with Abraham that would change not only his life, but the lives of, of even us. Lord, would you root us in the truth that you have for us as we think about your promise-making and promise-keeping. You are promise-making and promise-keeping God to us. And I pray that as we look at this passage, you would let us rest in that in a beautiful and fresh and new ways tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if, you, you know, if you're a movie or TV person, you know there's not been a shortage of post-apocalyptic shows and movies in the last 10 years. Everything from Walking Dead to Mad Max. We seem really obsessed with these plot lines that are all about surviving when the world ends. When it comes to this you know, crazy kind of 
Everyone for Himself ending. And the interesting thing is at the heart, if, if you saw, if you watch either of those shows, or if you saw Mad Max or watch Walking Dead, or there are other examples, at the heart of almost every one of these stories is this sort of tension or this dilemma or this question. Can I trust you to be good to me even when I have nothing to offer you? Can I trust you to love me, to make good on your promises to me no matter what? And that's the tension and dilemma that these characters live in. No one captured this better. I don't know if you're an English fan or not, but Cormac McCarthy's The Road. That's one of the most, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is like read good literature. And The Road is the best thing I've ever read in Fathers and Sons. And the, and the idea of making promises and keeping promises to each other. It's a tale, if you know the story, it's a tale of a father and son trying to survive in this post-apocalyptic, just, you know, crazy world. And there's this one scene in particular that gets, I think, in this idea of will you keep your promises to me really beautifully. I'm going to read it for us from The Road because it's one of my favorite scenes. So here are the father and son. Here's what McCarthy writes. It says, In the morning they pressed stone. It was very cold. Toward the afternoon it began to snow again. And they made camp early and crouched under the lean-to of the tarp and watched the snow fall in the quiet of the morning. By morning there were several inches of new snow on the ground, but the snow had stopped and it was so quiet they could all but hear their hearts. He piled wood on the coals and fanned the fire to life and trudged out through the drifts to dig out the cart. He sorted through the cans and went back, and they sat by the fire and ate the last of their crackers and a tin of sausage. In a pocket of his knapsack, he'd found a last half packet of cocoa, and he fixed it for the boy and then poured his own cup with hot water and sat blowing at the rim. And the little boy says, you promised not to do that, the boy said. What? You know what, Papa. He poured the hot water back into the pan and took the boy's cup and poured some of the cocoa into his own and then handed it back. I have to watch you all the time, the boy said. I know. If you break little promises, you'll break big ones. That's what you said. I know, but I want. What I love about this scene is this little boy in the road gets something that Abraham got years and years ago is that the world runs on promise-making and promise-keeping. It's this old idea called the covenant that God comes to Abraham here, and he makes these incredible promises. And he says to you, Abraham, I'm a God who, who is going to be there for you. I'm a God who is going to keep my promises. And there's a sense in which we, if we understand relationships and how they work, this is something that I think you and I have lost in this day. That, that really, when you think about it, there are kind of three basic ways of living in this world. One is to live as a slave. One is to live as a consumer. And the last is to live as someone who is in covenant. So if you think about living as a slave, a slave is someone who is ruled by someone else's desires. If you think about consumers, a consumer is someone who is ruled by their own desires. But then when you think about someone who is in covenant, someone who is in covenant isn't ruled by something, not by desires, they're ruled by something deeper than desires. They're ruled by, by promises, both promises made and promises kept. And this idea, this is what God is getting at when he makes this thing called a covenant. And, y'all, we have to have a category because the only way God, here's what you have to understand tonight, the only way God relates to his people, which means the only way he relates to us is through this thing called a covenant of of making and keeping of promises and a demanding and an asking of promises in return. The idea of covenant is fundamental to understanding God. It's where the Bible begins and it's where it ends. The the end of the Bible is the the ultimate consummation of this great covenant of grace that at the heart of says, I am your God and you are my people. And that's what's interesting about a covenant is it's, it's kind of two things put together. There's a sense in which it is incredibly personal and intimate. There's a sense when, when God says to us, I will be your God and you will be my people, he is saying, you are mine and I am yours. That's why like, if, I were, if, you were to, uh, if we were to go out to Marble Slab after this and we heard, overheard someone saying, 
that's my Anna or that's my Will. When you hear someone say something like that, you assume something. You assume my Anna or my Will. It indicates it's this really close, like maybe someone's spouse, maybe someone's child, maybe someone's brother or sister. It indicates this incredibly close and intimate relationship. And yet, on the other hand, the idea of covenant, it's not just full of these intimate personal promises, but it's also something that's very public and legally binding. It's something that you can be called out on. It's something that is, is, is held out for the world, a standard, a, a kind of contract held out for the world to see, which is why if you have even read a little bit of the Old Testament, you know that God is constantly calling his people out for breaking the covenant, for breaking their promises that they made to him, which is why at the end of Joshua you have that weird passage where it's like that ultimate, you know, uh, it's that ultimate Liam Neeson starring in a movie moment where, Joshua gathers the people and he says, he rallies them in this covenant, covenant renewal ceremony and says, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the gods of this land or are you going to serve Yahweh, our God, our Lord? He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to serve Yahweh. There's this interesting sense in which a covenant is both full of these personal intimate promises and yet it's full of these hard demands. <laughs> what I want to say to you is that we have lost this idea and you have lost this idea, and I have lost this idea. That when Jesus was with his disciples, and he said this crazy thing, he said, listen, y'all, the world is going to know you by your love. He did not mean, please listen to me, he did not mean the world is going to know you by how energetic and passionate you are and sing along to Hillsong. He did not mean the world is going to know you for how faithfully you go out and evangelize everyone you meet in the streets. That's not what he meant. What he meant was, the world is going to know you by this thing, this, this hesed covenant love that I've made even before Abraham, but that it starts in this beautiful way with Abraham that continues through on to us. This idea of a, a promise-making and promise-keeping, this one-way love where I say to you, where God says to us and we say to God, we are going to love you no matter what. We're going to be faithful to you no matter what. And God says, you are mine and I'm yours. I'm going to be faithful to you no matter what. And I'm asking you to be faithful to me no matter what. And instead, there's just two points tonight. But instead of living as people who are in covenant, we live like consumers. So there are two points tonight. Here's the first one. Stop living like a consumer. I'm going to unpack that. And the last one is start living like the person that you are, someone who is in covenant with God. So first, let's think about stop living like a consumer. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem is instead of living like God's coming to people, we live like a consumer. What's a consumer? A consumer is someone who thinks everything exists for them, for their benefit, to help them in some way. A consumer is someone who looks at the world around them and thinks this, what can I get out of this? What will this do for me? What, how does this help me? There's a supply and demand quality to the relationship. I need something and you can give it to me. Um, and let me kind of be fair and say that, that there are such things as like good consumer relationships. Like my wife and I just had this conversation where I recently switched hairstylists. I don't know what the, I was going to call it a barber, but they're not a barber. They're a hairstylist. And I'd been with her for like for going on four years. We had a, a good relationship. Like I would go and she would cut my hair. We would talk. Not too much. You know, like a, a stylist or a barber, choose your words carefully whatever you're comfortable with. They are, you know, they don't talk too much, but they talk just enough where you're not just sitting awkwardly in silence. She was pretty good at that. We developed a, a relationship. But then I found someone who cut my hair better. And so, and so I switched. And I don't really feel bad about that. Why? 
because it was a consumer relationship. Like we weren't in covenant with each other where I like made promises to always be her customer and she had made promises to always cut my hair. There's a sense when she was offering a good, she was offering a service. We're, we were friendly, but we weren't in covenant. So there is such a thing as like, you know, when you, there is such a thing as a, as good consumer relationships. Um, but the problem is that this is how you do all relationships. Is that everything's up for grabs. You can't commit yourself to anybody, especially when they're not giving you something, especially when you're not getting something out of it. This is not just in your friendships. This is in the church. That's why you switch churches every three months, or that's generous, every three weeks. This is why you switch campus ministry so often. You can't commit yourself. This is why you, you, this is why you switch majors. This is why you switch. You, we, you know, the, the tension we live in is that we treat every relationship like a consumer relationship. We do this in three ways, three ways that we live like consumers that I could think of. We live like consumers with ourselves. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to the way you relate to yourself, you live like a consumer. You constantly ask yourself the question, how can I make myself better? How can I make myself more marketable? Uh, you tie your worth to people's approval of you, as if you were a product on Amazon that could have a five-star rating or down to a one-star rating. You live like you're a product. You're constantly trying to measure yourself. Some of you actually weighed yourself right before you came. Some of you are actually wearing devices on your body that are going to tell you how much you exercise or didn't exercise today, and you can feel good or bad about yourself depending on if you hit that goal. Lots of you subject yourself to websites that let fellow students of the opposite sex determine your attractiveness by the swipe of a button, right or left. You live as if you were a product with relative worth instead of a human being made in God's image in an, uh, of inherent and infinite worth. You, you, you Sometimes we, you see yourself as a consumer, but you also treat each other like that. You treat each other like consumers when it comes to the way you relate to others. You constantly ask yourself the question, what does this person do for me? What do they give me? You, you, you treat friends like accessories, like they're a new pair of sunglasses. How do they look on me? Do they look cool enough on me? Do they make me look kind of weird? they make me look kind of weird? Mm, let's end that friendship. Uh, some of you use friends of the opposite sex just to make you feel better about yourself. Uh, some of you only do friendship with people. This is the Christian way to do it, by the way. This is like... Christian friends with benefits is you're only friends with people who reinforce your idealized view of yourself. It's like friendship masturbation. All you're doing is you're feeling good about yourself through these friends who don't actually ever challenge you or ever call you out in your self-righteousness. And all they do is reinforce your incredibly self-righteous view of yourself and of the world. And this is why for a lot of you, you just can't commit to anybody. You, you can't commit to get engaged. You can't admit to marry the person you've been dating for long enough. You're constantly exploring your options. You're constantly treating that person like they're, like, like they're a house you're about to close on. Are they going to be worth it in the long run? You're constantly treating them like they're a car that, you know, if you buy this car, but what about that car or what about this car? And there's a sense in which there's no lifelong commitment to this imperfect person, which is at the heart of the idea of covenant. This is why I love Lewis Smedes. I quoted freely from him in this handout. He's got this article. I think it's the best thing written in the last 40 years called Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. And he's thinking about, he, his basic thesis says, listen, the only way to live in this anxiety-filled world is to be a person of promises. That just but being here tonight, you are a person who has made promises. If you're a Christian, you've made promises to Jesus. You've made promises to his church. Just by virtue of being part of a family, you've made promises to your parents. There's a sense in which being in a relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you've made promises to them. And he's saying that's the only way to have any certainty in this world. 
is to rest in God's promises toward you as unfailing, but then in return move out into the world as a person who makes and keeps promises to each other. And here's he's reflecting on his marriage, and here's what he says about this idea of our fear of commitment. He says, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? I love this line. My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took on back there. He's talking about when God meets even Abraham here, but especially with Moses, and he says, I'm going to send you to set my people free. And remember Moses asked him, who shall I say that sent you? It's the same question that Abraham's asking here. How will I know? You see what he asks him. But, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord gives them his covenant name. And we typically translate it, I am who I am. There's a better translation. That's what Lewis Smith brings out. A better translation would be to say, I am he who will be with you. I am he who will be there for you. I am he who is in covenant with you and not going anywhere and he's talking about when we become Christians, we take that name on ourselves. The connecting link with my old self has always been the memory of the name I took on back there. I am he who will be there with you. When we slough off that name, lose that identity, we can hardly find ourselves again. And the bonds that connect us to others will be frayed to breaking. That's not just true of marriage. That's true of even your friendships tonight. Is instead of being following and taking the covenant name of God to say, I am, I am he, I am she who will be there for you. We're consumers and we say, I'll be there for you as long as you have something to give me. And as soon as you lose your value to me, we're done. And you've, you've like some of you are here and you've experienced that. And it sucks. And it hurts. But before you... Before you sort of leave in anger and bitterness toward other people, but look, you have to take a, we have to take a look at ourselves and say, have we ever broken or lost friendships because we live as if we were the only ones that mattered? And as soon as a person stops giving us something, we, we, we trash the relationship. We also do it with God. We do it with ourselves. We do it with each other. But we also live like consumers with God. Uh, we can do it like the younger brother in Luke 15 and, and sort of scream, give me what I want or else I'm out of here. Or we can do it like the older brother and quietly say in our hearts, I've served you so faithfully, you can't possibly not give me what I want. There's a real sense in which we live like, like consumers with God. You know you're living like a consumer with God when you're constantly trying to measure your performance. When you live checking off a daily to-do list of things you're supposed to do and things you're not supposed to do, and you turn it in, in your mind to God at the end of the day, you know you're living like a consumer with God when... It's all about how he makes you feel. And the only thing that you care about is, is getting this feeling from him. You know you live like a consumer when you're constantly sizing other people up. And when you're constantly, you're on the side of a, of a five-star Amazon product and you're, everyone else kind of falls into this three-star or less place. The problem is that you still see yourself as this product and not this person. Your worth is still bound up in what you have to offer, not in who you belong to. We don't know what to do with covenant. And so we have to stop thinking like consumers, but second, we have to start living like the covenant people of God that we are. And this is the thing in our passage that's really interesting. Is here's what's astounding what God does with Abraham in Genesis 15. He's enacting this, co- this common covenant ceremony back in this day. What we have to understand is, is basically Abraham knows what he's asking. We said that from the beginning. 
And he's basically saying it's this old sort of, you know, they didn't have contracts where you would sign and have a notary, and that was how the contract was made and kept. And instead, what they did was they had these sort of this, this uh, ritual where animals were cut in two, and a greater lord entered into a covenant or contract with a lesser lord. And what would happen is the greater lord would watch as the lesser lord walked through these cut animal pieces, and he would walk down the middle. And what he was signifying was he was saying, if I fail to keep this contract, if I fail to keep this covenant, may this happen to me. May I be like these animals. May I be cut off. May I be cut in two. May my life come to an end. So what's interesting is if you put yourself in Abraham's position, he, he thinks this is what God is going to do. He's, he's gotten the animals, and he's waiting on God to show up so that Abraham can walk through the pieces. And instead, something crazy happens. This sort of unbelievable scene happens is that it gets darkness surrounds. He falls into a deep sleep, and when he kind of wakes up from this sleep, he sees essentially God himself walking through the pieces in Abraham's place. Now, this is astounding until, number one, a greater Lord never walked through the pieces himself. It was always the lesser Lord. But the second thing is, you see what God is saying. God is saying, Abraham, not only am I going to keep my promises to you, but I'm even going to hold myself accountable if you break your promises to me. And I'm going to take the death that you deserve, and I'm going to take the consequences and the punishments that you deserve in your place. And Abraham is astounded. I mean, there's never been anything like this. And it's interesting, in Genesis, there are actually these three different cutting ceremonies. Uh, we're not, we're not going to read all of them, but Genesis 15, God has Abraham cut these animals into. Genesis 17, he gives him the sign of circumcision, and he has him, he has him cut himself on <clears throat> part of his body. And then the last one is Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to cut Isaac, his only son. And what's interesting is you, you trace the theme of God's unfailing one-way love, promise-making and promise-keeping love through these covenants. And here's what you see. Abraham cuts the animals, but God walks through the parts. And instead of Abraham being cut off, God cuts himself off as Christ was ultimately cut off for the sake of his covenant people on the cross. Abraham cuts part of himself and is wounded, but it doesn't kill him. He doesn't have to die. And Christ comes and, and is cut off in the most ultimate sense. Dies completely. Cut at the cross that by his wounds Abraham and you and I might be healed. Abraham raises the knife to cut and kill his son, but God stops him. Why? Because nothing's going to stop God from sacrificing his only son that he might bring as many sons and daughters, you and me, as our stars in the sky to be part of Abraham's offspring redeemed by God's own son, his own heart of his son. The heart of the covenant is, is this no matter what kind of love, that no matter what you do, God is saying, I'll be faithful to you. No matter where you are, I'll be with you. It's, I've been reading through, I've been trying to pony up in my Bible reading, and I've been reading through Ruth. And I love that scene in Ruth where, you know, if you know the story, Naomi loses her husband, loses her two sons, but they were recently married. And these two wives are looking at Naomi saying, what do we do? One, she looks at them and says, I have nothing to give you. Don't come with me back to Bethlehem. I have nothing for you. And she even says in this weird passage in, in Ruth 1 where she says, listen, I can't give you any sons. Even if I could give you a son, what, are you going to wait 18 years to marry him? I have nothing to give you. And one daughter leaves, but Ruth stays. And she says, I don't care. 
I'm, I love you and I'm with you and I'm going with you no matter what. And in this weird way, Ruth is this beautiful picture of Christ who says, I love you and I'm with you even though you can give me nothing. Even though you have nothing to give me. I love you and I'm with you and I'm for you. Here's the deal. This is what this is. Okay, why is this so important? Why do I think this is so foundational? Here's the deal. Everyone in this room is either a conservative or a liberal. Conservatives look at the Bible and say, see, only those people who do everything God commands them are the ones that he loves. And so if you're a conservative, you're all demands, but love is mushy because God only loves those who do what he commands. Liberals on the other hand go the opposite way. They say, look at the Bible and say, see, God loves everybody regardless, no matter what. It doesn't matter what you do. God loves you. And so liberals typically are all love but no demands as if God existed to forgive you and to love you unconditionally, which really means I get to do whatever I want to do. But not God's covenant people. God's covenant people, you're invited into something that is this beautiful tension. On the one hand, you say, look, God is God and he commands what he will. Who will speak back to God? He can demand whatever he will. And yet he is a God of grace. He also gives what he commands. And not only that, he can ask of me anything he wants because he's already given me everything he could possibly give in his son. And all of his promises, Paul says, are yes and amen to me and Jesus. It was his life for my life, and now he's invited me into living my life for his life. And there's a sense in which, let's just get a little more practical There's a sense in which this frees you to do a couple things. When you live as a person who is in covenant, part of the covenant people of God, someone who's in covenant with God. And the the first thing is it helps you take sin super seriously without taking yourself too seriously. It helps you take sin and repentance absolutely deadly seriously without taking yourself too seriously. Whether it's porn or pride or Nicholas Sparks romance idolatry or drinking too much. You are deeply, if you're living in covenant, you are deeply committed to repenting of sins seen and unseen that compete with your love for Jesus. And yet, because you belong to Jesus, you know that when you fail, all you must do is go collapse on Jesus and be met with forgiveness and grace and strength to stand up and walk, get up and walk, clinging to his promises, fighting for the kind of life Jesus is asking and inviting us into. I just started, um, you know, Pat Conroy died recently. He's like the son of South Carolina, one of my favorite writers. And I never read his, one of his, probably the book that put him on the map, Prince of Tides. And there's this great line at the beginning where, where Conroy says, listen, Southerners always do this funny thing where they laugh and then they cry. And I thought it was really interesting because it's really true. We don't know how to do sadness as Southerners typically. But with God's covenant people, it's just the opposite. We're able to cry at our own brokenness and at our sin but then laugh, because even such as us, sinful as we are, belong to Jesus, who has made promises to us that he intends to keep. Two, living in covenant means that you're free to be yourself, but to also give yourself to others. You're free to kind of be who you are, God has made you to be, but also to give yourself selflessly to others. When you have the security that God will make good in every single, that he already has made good in every single promise to you in Christ, that all of his promises to you are yes and amen, to forgive you, to change you, to be with you, to be good to you even in your bad parts, the bad parts of your story, to be with you, to renew the world somehow through your little hands and your little work, you're free to be yourself. This is what I love about my, one of my dear friends, his name's John Stone. He'll always say to me, Sammy, be yourself and then repent. Don't hold back being afraid 
of saying or doing what you think or what you want to do. Be yourself and then repent. And there's a freedom that the covenant gives you to do that, to be yourself and then repent as God, as Jesus convicts you and rebukes you and invites you to repent. But you're also freed not just to be yourself, but you're freed to make some promises of your own. You know, if the heart of the covenant is you belong to me, what God is saying, then there's a sense in which we belong to him, eccentricities, flaws, and all, but we also are enabled to give ourselves in that way to each other. That we belong to Jesus, but we also belong to each other in this beautiful way. And this is what you're longing for. This is where community begins. Community begins in being radically accepted and called by God into this relationship, not just with him, but with each other. Where we're known kind of flaws, to quote Beyonce, flaws and all. There's a, we went out to um, San Fran uh, this past spring break. Some of you were with us. And Britton always talks about this place. He was campus minister here. Now he's at Stanford. But he always talks about this place called the Dutch Goose. And I've heard, like, it's like, I've heard five years of him talking about it. Where even before him, this guy David Jones would talk about it. It's this little neighborhood kind of pub that's right in their neighborhood. And they all have the saying. Starting with David Jones, Britton says that even his interns creepily like, said it to me. The saying is this. She's not much, but she's ours. And the idea is they all walk down every Saturday and they have lunch with their kids and their families. And they'll say the food's not so great. You know, the atmosphere's not so great, but she's, she's ours. We go, she's in our neighborhood. We love her. We go there. And I love that idea. I love that line. She may not be much, but she's ours. Because I think that gets to the heart of what it means to be in covenant with God. You're not God's because you're so incredible. You're not God's because you're so great, but you're great because you belong to God. You know, the, the covenant invites you into this humility, this joyful humility of not having to be too much, and yet knowing your infinite muchness to God. Three, living in covenant means you're not living in FOMO, but in, I didn't know how to say this, but I'm going to call it pumpka. And what I mean by that is <laughs> PMPK, FOMO, if you're missing out. But instead you're invited to, I want to say pumpka, well, promises made, promises kept. I'm not going to do that again because it's embarrassing. Uh, whether it's sort of marriage or church membership or just like being friends or, you know, leading in ministry, because God has made promises that he intends to keep, and he's committed himself to a no matter what kind of love toward you. What it basically frees you to do and me to do is to do the same with each other. To commit ourselves. To, to commit yourself to some place you think you're better than. I mean, you're not. And you'll find it out soon. But to commit yourself to someone who can't give you anything. To commit yourself to someone who's going to fail you. To commit yourself to a, a, an institution called the church that has failed you. To commit yourself to this mundane, ordinary, you know, when you look at it from the outside, unspecial, even ugly or uncharming or just, ugh, kind of a thing. And yet you're willing to commit yourself. In other words, you know, when you're living as a, in covenant with God, you move out into the world in these terrifying yet life-giving promises to, to others around you. That God hasn't called you to shrink back into the life of a selfish consumer. He's called you to move out into the world in grace and strength as this covenant-centered, promise-making, promise-keeping, committed person. Um, I'll close with this. So one of the, my favorite books that I used to read my kids, and now they're old and we don't read it anymore, but sometimes I'll sneak a little read in because uh, it, it's still my favorite heart of the gospel kid story. 
uh, it's called the Runaway Bunny. Maybe you read it growing up. And the Runaway Bunny is it's just it's basically little rabbit bunny, obviously, little child, and a mother rabbit. And the little bunny wants to run away. Hence the title, Runaway Bunny. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he tries to run away. But he says things like, he's mad at his mom, and he says, you know, I'm going to become a sailboat and sail away from you. And he says, I'm going to become a, mil- a rock and a mountain and be far, far away from you. And I'm going to, you know, become this flower in the middle of, the, in a, of a forest and be hidden from you. And every time his mother answers, he says, I'm a sailboat. She says, I'm going to be the wind who blows you back to me. And he says, I'm going to be a rock and a mountain. She says, well, I'm going to become a mountain climber. And I'm going to hike to be with you. And, you know, when he says, I'm going to become a flower, she says, well, I'm going to become a gardener and come to you and be with you. And I love this book because at the heart of it is this idea of covenant, which is what it means to be a parent. Be, you know, being a parent, Jamie Smith likes to say, being a parent is just a promise to love prodigals. What I want you to see is that the way that God does relationship with you and with me is to say, you belong to me. And no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, I'm going to be there with you. And I'm going to love you. And sometimes that means I'm going to love you out of your sons back to me. And it does definitely mean that I'm going to love you in a way that's going to change the way you think about life and do life. But at the heart of how God relates to you is this idea of I've made promises that I intend to keep. And what that does is that invites us not just to rest in his promises to us, but it invites us to do that with each other, to do that in this campus, to do that in this city as we follow Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would take uh, truths from your word and impress them in our hearts. Would you further the ministry of your spirit to us even as we leave from this place? We thank you that um, you, your, your ability to reach us is, is infinite. And I pray, Lord, that you would take a little bit that was said tonight, any bit of promise and truth, and that you would um, work it into our hearts and lives in ways that are beautiful and fruitful and pleasing to you. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.